0: You are listening to Reach mdxm 233, the channel for medical professionals. One would be in great error to assume that a child was abused simply because it was different from the norm without paying careful attention to intervening factors. In shaken baby syndrome cases, doctors are usually unable because the baby is deceased or uninterested in pursuing other explanations for the injuries once a diagnosis of shaken baby syndrome has been reached. Today we're going to talk about shaken baby syndrome, whether or not it is real or a myth. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Stephen Weinberg, criminal defense attorney in Chicago with over 15 years of trial experience. Welcome to the show, Stephen.
1: Thanks for having me,
0: Larry. Steve, um, I've heard the term used before, but I really don't know that much about shaken baby syndrome or SBS. Can you tell us what it is?
1: Well, Dr. Caskell A standard diagnosis for shaken baby occurs when an infant, they're usually between three months, maybe up until eight or nine months, they're admitted to the emergency room, uh, and they present with uh, usually three things. They're called the shaken baby triad, usually a subdural hematoma, retinal hemorrhaging, and uh, the person who brings them in usually explains a fall that is not from any type of appreciable height and it's not an accident from a motor vehicle. So when you've got the subdural hematomas, retinal hemorrhages, and a situation where a short fall and no motor vehicle impact, uh, usually it's been my experience uh, that these cases get rubber-stamped as shaken baby.
0: So when you say rubber-stamped... Does that mean that it's possible that there's something else causing it, but these people are being labeled shaken baby, and once you say that, you're you're in deep
1: trouble? Not in all cases. I think in some of these cases that things other than shaken baby are occurring. I think that the problem lies in the investigation stage. I think that because when a baby presents with the shaken baby triad, That the investigation, rather than going deeper, is pulled back and uh, a diagnosis of shaken baby is made uh, when, in fact, further investigation might, not always, but might reveal other causes or other explanations uh, for the symptoms.
0: So it seems that in this situation, people are considered guilty until proven innocent instead of the other
1: way around. The term itself, shaken baby, is very prejudicial on its face. The actual charge legally is called an aggravated battery to a child, and it has been abbreviated as shaken baby. Uh, there's sort of a trend going on now to bar the use of the term shaken baby from being uh, paraded in front of a jury for a jury to hear uh, when in fact there is some controversy as to whether or not that term shaken baby is actually accurate.
0: So have they done studies to see how hard you have to shake a baby to cause these
1: injuries? I I don't know specifically which studies have been done. However, I have read in the journals that the damage necessary to shake a baby... uh, is such that you would possibly need as much strength as you would need to lift a Volkswagen just a few inches off the ground. It is a very significant movement. The mechanics involved, if a baby were to be shaken that violently and rigorously, would involve not only the brain, but you would have to see neck injury, You would have to see bruising around the arms or the chest area where that person was holding the baby when shaking. And all of these factors have to be looked at and everything has to be examined uh, before you can label a baby as shaken because once that happens, other social agencies come into the picture and uh, things get very complicated.
0: Yeah, it seems like once that diagnosis is made, Certain things go into motion that can 't be stopped can you Can you tell us a little more about what actually will happen?
1: Well, certainly, once that diagnosis is is made, if we 're talking about a family member uh, there 's a complete social investigation that is done on that family uh, that includes a complete psychological and mental history of the mother, the father, and even the children that are still in the household. A lot of times they'll do what's called a VSI or a victim-sensitive interview uh, that will be taped that will discuss situations with the other children in the house, and it is aimed at trying to get the other children in the house to shed some light on the activities that occur in that house uh, throughout the days or years. I'm pretty sure that kids lie most of the
0: time and that aren't, aren't very good witnesses. How much weight should be given to a child's
1: testimony in these cases? I don't disagree uh, that children lie in a lot of situations. Uh, they also may not understand uh, the importance of what is being asked of them. Uh, however, I do think that by viewing these tapes of these victim-sensitive interviews, the child does
0: not know he's being taped. So what are they, what are they trying to prove by interviewing the brothers and sisters?
1: Yeah, they're trying to get a candid uh, review of the treatment and the upbringing that's going on in that house. And they're using these kids. uh, They try to gain their trust, and then they make suggestions. Uh, My experience has been they're very sneaky and sly, these interviews, because, of course, the interviewers are trained, and they are trained to try to elicit a certain type of information that, if true, might be embarrassing for a little kid to admit to another adult So I think that by looking at these victim-sensitive interviews, you're looking at them on a VCR and the child doesn't know it's being taped. You can read between the lines and make your own assessment as to what's going on there.
0: I was just thinking that if I'm in an emergency room setting and let's say a nurse just walks into the room to take the history and she suspects SBS or shaken baby syndrome and just may casually mention it to the physician or the intern or the resident, once it's out there, it's kind of out there. And it seems like
1: it's it's a domino effect from then on. It absolutely is. I also believe that once a firm diagnosis is made by the doctor of Shaken Baby, I do believe the emergency room personnel have obligations to contact the local police department, uh, who then does come in, potentially make an arrest, potentially remove a child from a home, put them in foster care, and then the social investigation starts. So when that term is bantered about in emergency rooms, uh, it is very serious, and the consequences consequences excuse me can be devastating.
0: You talked a little bit about uh, the force required to create this problem, that it would cause some sort of ecchymosis or bruising on the children's arms. Do those bruises show up later?
1: Yes, they do. They show up later, and uh, sometimes they show up when the child is presenting in the emergency room. Uh, But every expert I have spoken to has said that if a child was really physically shaken to the point of death or serious brain trauma, uh, that there's a very significant chance that there's going to be some bruising elsewhere. You're going to see fingertip marks on the arms or chest.
0: So why isn't that part of the triad? seems like it should be four things instead of three because without the bruising... There's got to be other possible explanations for what happened.
1: Well, there are other possible explanations. There's um, certainly chronic or old subdural hematomas. They can rebleed with little or no impact at all. Uh, there is a condition known as ex- benign external hydrocephalus uh, where clinical symptoms are very similar to other closed-head trauma situations, coagulopathies, are uh, other reasons why a child can present with a subdural hematoma or retinal hemorrhage. I believe that if the diagnosis is going in that direction, just take your time and investigate it thoroughly. There's plenty of time, plenty of time to make these arrests and to do the things that need to be done. But once that decision is made... There are some irrevocable factors that are triggered. Therefore, I I do think that the investigation should be very, very detailed.
0: So when you start an investigation, what else are you looking for? What else do you need to get this person acquitted?
1: Well, hopefully they didn't do it. Uh, And if they didn't do it, what I would look for is other incidences of trauma. How often has this kid been to the doctor and for what? What type of person is the mother and the father? Are they working? Are they home all day? Do they have any kind of dependency issues, alcohol issues? I think all those social factors come into play. Uh, But certainly in order to acquit, I would need a doctor to say that whatever facts or, for use of a better term, story uh, the adult is saying happened is possible or fits the injury.
0: So you mentioned different other explanations such as coagulopathies. Um, It would be nice if you, through discovery, determined that this patient actually did have some sort of bleeding disorder that predisposed that patient to actually developing the syndrome even though it had nothing to do with being shaken whatsoever.
1: It would go a long way. And certainly, uh, if there's a medical expert who's going to back that up, uh, that is absolutely pivotal in being presented uh, to a jury. Is shaken baby syndrome unique to the United States? I have not heard of any cases elsewhere, uh, the ones I'm familiar with. And uh, the nanny case that uh, was so popular a few years ago. In uh, England, uh, right. Uh, she was an English nanny, but I believe it happened here. So I believe that the offense transcends all races and nationalities, but I'm not familiar with any cases outside the country, although I'm sure they do exist.
0: Steve, do you think the shaken baby syndrome triad is given too much credence?
1: Well, in certain places, certain hospitals, yes, I do believe it's given too much credence. I mean, the triad is, is one factor and a very important one. Uh, but there are other intervening factors that must be taken into account before you make the final diagnosis of shaken baby. Uh, some of those factors might include kids that are more susceptible to head injuries. You know, situation we all know that you don't just die from a paper cut. However, if a child uh, gets a paper cut and He's a serious hemophiliac. I suppose if that cut went untreated, uh, that small paper cut that of course nobody would normally die from, I guess, I guess it could explode into a uh, dire situation where he he could die. Uh, so from from that standpoint, I just believe that once you see retinal hemorrhages and subdural hematomas, uh, and in the the facts are that the kid was not in an auto accident or fell off a uh, tall ladder or something. Uh, Rather than jumping the gun, I just think that it's important to talk to as many people involved with that kid as possible, interview the parents, interview the caretakers, interview the brothers and sisters, look at the complete medical history. We're talking usually about infants. There can't be too many medical records. I always like to get the reports, the medical reports from, from when the child is born up until the accident, and then certainly if the child is alive, anything following. Uh, so I do believe that the triad is given a lot of credence, uh, but it's not the only factor. And I think it's just the beginning, if it's uh, present.
0: I'd like to thank our guest, Steven Weinberg, a criminal defense attorney in Chicago, who joined us today to talk about the shaken baby syndrome. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com.